0: Welcome to this week's episode. Today, I am talking with an old friend who I've known for close to 10 years, Mark Fine. Mark Fine is a coach, educational consultant, and mental health advocate with lived experience of depression and over a decade of experience creating interactive workshops that have empowered thousands of individuals and organizations with practical tools to manage stress, provide emotional support, and break the stigma around mental illness. He is certified in Youth Mental Health First Aid, a graduate of the Co-Active Training Institute, a certificate in experiential Jewish education from Yeshiva University, and is pursuing a master's in nonprofit management and leadership at Hebrew University. Mark has also led eight trips and over 500 students to Poland and presented at Yad Vashem. Mark previously worked as a speechwriter at Yeshiva University and regional director for NCSY, where we met originally. Let's get right into it. Welcome to this week's episode of The Dude Therapist. I have an old friend who I've known for about like 10 years or so, maybe 9, 10. uh, And we met through an organization called NCSY, which is a youth organization in the Orthodox Jewish world, helping teens kind of have a comfortable space to search for their religiosity and spirituality have a space to ask questions and mark fine is like one of the top people was is still connected don't know but doing amazing things in the world and also is an amazing mental health advocate based on his journey but i don't want to kind of steal the show so mark can you kind of introduce yourself to the listeners
1: uh hi listeners uh thank you ellie for that glorious uh introduction uh i could say more about... if you want no no that's uh that's all good uh Depending on your introduction really depends on whether I share episodes with my grandmother or not. It really all comes down to how intense the introduction is. Uh, but, but yeah, uh, name's Mark Fine. Uh, doing uh, coaching, mental health advocacy, educational consulting, where I design uh, what I call authentic caring and empowering experiences uh, to support people in discovering uh, themselves, their strengths, and having conversations about the real stuff.
0: And and Mark Fine was always the person that I felt comfortable going to, to ask those hard questions about how to create content, how to brand yourself, to come up with a tagline or a message to come through throughout entire programming, whether it was religious, whether it was educational or crossover of the both. It was an unbelievable, his brain is an unbelievable way, like thinks of things differently than not in a weird way, but in an amazing way. And um, about, I would say about what? Nine, eight years ago, you start opening up about your mental health journey, right? Yeah. At the YU event. 2013,
1: 2014. Yeah. At uh, well, Active Minds was yeah, the first and, time. And I it's
0: amazing. That, uh, and since then, it's kind of been like very open conversation about mental health. But how was that first opportunity to finally put yourself out there when it comes to opening up about your mental health?
1: Uh, yes, yeah, so that was terrifying. Uh, <laughs> I, I still I still think that if I actually knew what I was doing, that I probably wouldn't have done it. <laughs> Why is that? Uh, because when you're out there, you're out there, yeah. and I don't think I realized how vulnerable I was being until it was it was out there. Uh, like the way that that speech even happened was because I participated in what's called the What I Be project. Is that and, the thing with all
0: the lettering all over your? Yeah, the, the letter hands? on the, the
1: hands. You can look it up. What I Be uh, What I be project, uh, dot com, and you basically wrote um, on your body in some way something that was that you were hiding that you wanted to overcome so i wrote on one hand public inspirational competent leader and on the other hand private um depressed scared and alone yeah and i posted it on facebook back before we realized that people looked at social media <laughs> because i'm old and i people shared it and people commented on it yeah, and yeah. all of a sudden i was quite literally, the face of depression. <laughs> and then I spoke at Active Minds and shared my story. And I remember like shaking beforehand and rehearsing. And what am I going to say? And what's the message going to be? And uh, there were hundreds of people in the room. And then we uploaded it to YouTube. And then that led to more speaking and, and sharing. And I wasn't done yet. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the part that I didn't realize until afterwards, that so much of my initial putting myself out there was trying to convince myself oh, I've beat this and I'm going to show ev- everyone and myself that I've beat this because I can talk about it. When the reality was I was still thick in it and processing it and I wasn't done yet. And it was a part of the healing journey as opposed to the the end of it. And yeah, journey, journey is a good word
0: to describe yeah, it. <laughs> because, you know, watching you over the years, whether it was in summer programs, events, or, or whether it was throughout any weekend retreat as we call them shabbatones or any way of just you being upfront or dealing with teenagers or even staff. I have never I never saw that. I never saw that side. And I think that's what's the the biggest thing about mental health is that we don't always see it. And I think now I say in the past five, six years from my perspective now as a therapist, mm-hmm. looking at social media in a different way, watching people post this idea of like the silence within the mental health, the aloneness, because you don't always see it. It's not, let's say, for example, a physical illness that you might be able to see. It might not. It's not a disability that someone doesn't have a leg or can't walk or can't talk or hear. But it's something internal that can be debilitating, but no one else knows. So when did you first realize that you were going through depression or, or, or the stuff that you were handling? What was that aha moment? You were like, I'm not doing okay.
1: Uh, I'm laughing because I there were probably so many aha moments along the way that were not aha moments because I just didn't realize or, or ignored. Uh, like I, I definitely had two major depressive episodes and people ask me, Oh, so what did you learn from the first one? And I go, nothing. I learned nothing because I denied that it ever happened and I didn't get treated for it. And ultimately I found a new job and I felt better because the context changed, but none of the internal work happened. So I literally learned nothing. And I had this, I had this rule for myself that if I was just hurting myself, that it was fine, that I wasn't allowed to hurt other people. Yeah. And I was just oblivious to the impact I was having on other people. And it took until uh, a colleague of mine, uh, Mrs. Rifka Berkowitz, who is a, at the time was a 70 year old woman who worked with me and she sat me down in one of these weekend retreats and said, Mark, I don't know what's going on, but it's not working for you. It's not working for me and we need to have a conversation. Wow. And that was the first time that I remember, even though probably other people have tried to have that conversation with me, but it was the first time that someone was just so direct about, I don't know what's going on, but it's not working for you and it's not working for me. So, What's up? And it was as if I was waiting for someone to, to label it and to start a conversation with me about it because I didn't have the language or the mindset or the, the courage to have that conversation with myself
0: which is just so interesting to hear. And I know your story a little bit that someone who always had those answers, who always had the words, the right words or questioning the words that someone for else used. For other others, people. right? For others, very that's, key distinction. <laughs> and that's the, that's the hard part that sometimes we can't even seat ourselves or put that words to us. And for you then, when it came down to it, and if you don't want to answer, of course, you don't have to. What were some things that maybe were the cycles of, of pain that you kind of caused yourself and that you wouldn't cross over to other people and maybe did cross over to other people?
1: Uh, sure. Uh, who doesn't love talking about their pain to an anonymous <laughs> audience? <laughs> isn't isn't that what we do? Shout it's in. All to, shout what this in is to about it.
0: is to cause people to talk about their pain openly with other people. And yeah, never at least I don't have it. to pay you for it. <laughs> it's uh, all free. <laughs>
1: And now that I've deflected through humor, which is what I do, by the way, because it allows me to to talk about it, and that's yeah. one of the things that, if you've ever heard me heard me speak, my speeches are funny, they because are. I need that to be for the audience so they listen to me, but I also need it for me, yeah. because if I just go into the heaviness without no, but we can laugh about it, and it creates a little bit of of distance. So now that I've created a little bit of distance, let's uh let's get let's get real, shall we? So uh, for me, uh, I numbed a lot. Uh, I numbed through through exercising. Um, I was in the best shape of my life when I when I was depressed because when you push yourself to your physical limit, there there's no space for anything else. You're just like fully in that moment. There's no room for thoughts. Uh, I was a, I was a workaholic. Uh, like there, I distinctly remember like between November and. Uh, we'll call it March of uh, one of those particular years. Probably every two, three weeks, I was in a different city running a different event, doing a different thing. And it justified the physical realities and my social withdrawal because, oh, of course he's exhausted. He was just doing A, B, and C. Oh, of course he's not picking up the phone for a couple of days. That, like, he was just so, so busy. And I created these natural excuses uh, for myself. And because I was so externally, professionally successful in so many ways, yeah. it was so easy to justify whatever else was going on because, no, there, there can't be anything wrong. I mean, he's the role model of, he's the leader of, he's the man. And that just reinforced how much harder I needed to work because I didn't believe any of that about myself. So I had Mm -hmm. to work harder to justify what everyone else believed because my own mindset was I'm worthless. I'm not good enough. I need to do more. More. So instead of doing the internal work, I just kept doing more until eventually I um, basically collapsed (laughs) and realized, okay, time for a new choice.
0: And you know, you talked about something that one of my favorite books on anxiety, phobias and fears is called freedom from fear by Dr. Howard Liebgold. Um, it's this like blue book. There are a lot of books that have the title freedom from fear. So I don't know how he got away with it copyright wise, but I don't care. Um, uh, but it's a great, <laughs> he, book also because- has, he has a sequel called freedom from copyright and, the, third one, <laughs> freedom from uh, and uh, the book really is he's a psychiatrist who, um, struggled from agoraphobia and, uh, anxiety. And he used his natural life to deal. So the two examples that I remember vividly from the book that I can't, you know, I have it somewhere over here is this idea that his wife would say, oh, come, let's go with the kids. Let's go out with the kids. And he'd say, no, you go have a great day. I'll watch the kids. <gasps> what an amazing husband you are. Mm-hmm. Oh, what a good father. You're so amazing. Yeah, I know. Thank you. Okay, go. Yeah. And then he would basically live within his agoraphobia by navigating it. By not going outside, by by masking it, by doing something else, and right. the other example, yeah, he adapted. He adapt. The other example was the uh, when he would have anxiety uh, during meetings, he would pretend to get an emergency phone call, like these mm-hmm. you know massive consultation meetings. He was at the top of the psychiatric department of whatever hospital he was working at, and he'd go, "Okay, I'll be there in a second, and would run out from the meeting, um, and just hide. But using so my
1: first his- reaction is smart man.
0: Yeah. No, it's, it's genius. It's very genius because that's what people do without the right tools or skills Mm -hmm. to handle, to handle whatever their mental health struggle is, because it's the natural thing to learn how to cope on your own. And it works for a time until it didn't for him. And he ended up getting treatment at whatever program he went to and then took that and superimposed the treatment he had to write a book and to actually utilize that in the psychiatric unit that he worked at. Um, and it's a pretty funny book. He has a lot of humor in it. You know, when he comes and explains the idea of adrenaline pumping for your body, when it comes to anxiety, he takes a squirt gun. When someone um, says something that is anxiety inducing, he'll, he'll shoot them in the face or something like that to kind of like wake them. and goes, that was adrenaline. It's like this very cute, cutesy way of like reminding someone that you're pumping adrenaline through your bo- body and it's not going to help. And it takes like 15 to 20 minutes to kind of calm down. But the book is really interesting. And it reminds me of that because I think we all do that in some way or another. I know I do that. I navigate and hide from or avoid my issues by doing something else to mask looking like I'm okay. And, and especially when there are good things. Yeah. So for me, it was overconfidence. Like when I was in NCSY or when I was talking, I was, I felt like imposter syndrome because I would see people like yourself and other people who were higher up who were just doing such great things. I was like, I can't do that, but I'm going to show and look like I can. Because then if I look like I can, I'm going to get recognized and then move up or do something better or different. So it was this be bigger than myself, even though internally I'm like, what am I doing? And I really admire you sharing that because I felt very similar. It was, it was more anxiety than depression, but it was like anxiety of like, am I doing enough? And is this, am I good enough? And and that's a constant theme that I have in my life. It's that little voice of never enough. It's still like that. Why do you think I have a podcast? I'm, my private practice, I'm working for a group practice. I'm also a husband and a father, you know, I'm doing 18 things at once because I don't think that one thing is good enough for me to be successful, but I've now found a healthier balance that I know when to say no and create that safe place for me not to feel that way so that I don't get burnt out and I don't get that way. So I really admire you sharing that because it, it hits home in a very, a very good way for me to understand that I wasn't like the only person and you're not. Which then leads me to your talks, right? You talk all over the place, specifically to teenagers, right?
1: Uh, yeah, mostly mostly to high school students. Mostly
0: the high schools. And you really, one of the things I, not one of the things, I do admire a lot of things that you do, but one of the things that I think you really hit the, the nail on the head is this idea of helping people create conversations about mental health, which I think one of the hardest things for people, especially teens, is talking about it or even having the words to talk about it. So how do you create that? What do you what do you not to give your secret sauce away of your speeches and all that kind of stuff? Oh, the whole point of speaking
1: is to give the secret sauce <laughs> away. Like, we we are in one of those few businesses where if we were to go obsolete, that'd be amazing. I would love to be out of business. That would, I would mean not. It but works. I hear
0: what you're saying, right? <laughs> I would I would not know what else to do. I'd be like, wait, uh, I worked for this. Uh, okay, I guess I'll just uh, you know I'll just sit back and do nothing. But I agree with you, right? Part of it, and and the hard part is that sometimes to get more business or to do more, we have to give a little bit of our secret sauce to be able to have people go, oh, I like that. But so
1: so I'm gonna I'm gonna give you both a business tip, which I think you're already doing, and the secret sauce, which is. The more you give away, the more that comes back to you. Yes, a thousand percent. I, I, I believe that. I agree, one with you thousand percent. And the so more that, what you is that them it, for you? What, uh, is that? what is that?
0: How do you create that environment for teens in a school setting? In in and it's not in your like your it's not your office where you create the vibe where you create that thing, but it's in their turf. It's on their campuses. It's at their kind of school where they might not feel so comfortable. How do you create that space for teens to feel comfortable?
1: Great. So I think number one is recognizing who's in the room and where are they coming from? And what are they looking for? And I think there are certain just universals of I want to be seen. I want to be seen. I want to be acknowledged. I want to be able to fully express myself. And especially for teens, but I'm not sure who I am. and I'm not sure how to do that. And no matter if they walk into the room with their arms crossed or the classic assembly, everyone, please go to the auditorium for the super important assembly on mental health. Like uh, You can imagine how they're, they're entering the, the room. So I know, okay, I need to show up in a way that's authentic because they'll only respond to authentic. There are thousands of people who know more about mental health and depression, and anxiety than I do from a content perspective. I don't know how many people are out there who can communicate that knowledge in a way that teens or other people can hear that. Because when I walk into auditorium and they give this whole presentation about, oh, here's who he is, and here's why he's so impressive in the introduction, and I get up there, and the first thing I do is I, I shout. I'm like, okay, hey, who's excited to talk about depression? And I get these looks back, like, no, no, no. Like, I mean, like, who's excited to talk about depression? And some people start, like, fake cheering, I go, yeah, like that's why I'm here. I'm here because I'm excited to to talk about it. And I think it's important that we have this conversation. But before we talk about depression, we need to talk about everybody else's favorite topic, which is statistics. Mm -hmm. So who's excited to talk about statistics? (laughs) And there's always one person that goes, woo. I'm like, yes, because there's always one person who talks about statistics. But here's the real statistic. And at this point, they're already like, okay, what's going on? Yeah. Uh, I'm interested. I'm curious. This is different than what I'm expected. He's playing against expectations. What's going to happen next? And then I say, okay, if I can get, I ask um, a fifth of the room to stand up. Sometimes I'll do it by row. Sometimes I'll do it by birthday months. And then I'll say, okay, you see how many people are standing right now? Let's say there are 100 people in a room, 20 people are standing. I'm like, according to the National Alliance of Mental Illness, 20%, one in five. Yeah. Will suffer from a major mental health episode over the course of their lifetime. Yeah. In case you're wondering what that looks like in a room this size, here it is. Here it is. Wow. Bam. Mm-hmm. Total tone shift, energy shift, and it makes it real and it makes it tangible and implicitly gives permission. Okay, this is what we're talking about. Then I say if half of them can sit down. So now 10 people are standing. And of those, 50%, five zero, suffer in silence and don't ask for support. In a room this size, that is the amount of people statistically right now who are suffering in silence from something real and not asking for support. Yeah. Then after they sit down, I go, okay, why? What are the obstacles? And then from the audience, they start sharing uh, because I'm ashamed. Ashamed of what? I feel guilty. I feel like it's not legitimate. I don't want to be a burden because I'm not that guy. I don't want to be judged. Mm -hmm. But again, right now, I'm not asking them to share what they're thinking or feeling. I'm asking going to share, oh, what are obstacles? It's yeah. a degree removed. It's a little bit safer. But then once all that is out there, now we're having a real conversation about what are the real obstacles. And I level with them. And I say, look, everything that you just shared, that's real. And I'm not going to convince you any of that isn't real. Those are real obstacles. And I also believe there are alternatives and ways to overcome those. That's great. Let's have that conversation. And then I reintroduce myself. Yeah. Like, okay, here's my story. And I go through here are my SAT scores, and here's how I was capped enough and whatever. And like I really build up like how incredible in significant air quotes I am. Yeah. And like, and that's all true. And here's what's also true. And then I start to go into my story. Yeah. And once I start going into my story, they're like, oh, this is this is real. And I'm able to create this language for them of what's the difference between anxiety and feeling anxious Mm -hmm. and giving real stories and anecdotes for both yeah what's the difference between feeling depressed and being sad what's the difference not being able to fall asleep at night and rumination Mm -hmm. and as i make it more and more real all of a sudden they have all these internal thoughts that they never could figure out how to label or how to express and now i'm giving them a language for their internal experience that for some of them until that moment they thought they were the only person who had felt before yeah and then i share for my story okay so what was the intervention that worked for me how did i ask for support what's language for that how do you check in with friends because mm-hmm. so many of them want to but don't know how yeah and they think oh if there's only page 62 of the manual <laughs> then i'll be able to and like it doesn't have to be that complicated it can literally be hey i noticed that you haven't been hanging out with us so often what's going on and yeah. that could be it and yeah. ditto for asking for support yeah. To walk into the office and say, you don't need to give your entire life story. Hey, I've been feeling sad lately. Like, can I have an appointment? And that can be it. Yeah. And giving them language and giving them practical tools, or even better, I've started asking uh, students to prepare in advance, If especially if it's part of a mental health club, what are tools that they have found have worked in their own life? And then have their own peers present to them. Mm-hmm. Because they hear things different from people that have credibility, people they believe in. Whether it's because of their own lived experience or whether it's because they believe, oh, you get it.
0: Yeah, I love that. I think that's so important. And the beginning sentence you said about there's a big difference between, you know, there are people who are they know more, right, or have whatever accolades that make them look like they know more content or whatever it is. But there's a difference and I've met plenty of people who are top of their fields who cannot get it out in a relatable way. And that kind of loses its power because you can have all the letters after your name or all the things or all the experience and the years of expertise. But if if you're asked to speak to a certain crowd and you can't and you reuse the same things with the numbers and you're all just in the content and not about connecting, you lose that power that you have, which is your accolades, because right. so someone else can do it up. great.
1: What you just said, which is so crucial content, as opposed to connection. Yeah. They're, they're looking for connection. They're looking for them to be at the center. Yeah. Are you putting your experience at the center or are you saying as speaker, look at me?
0: Yeah. And and thank you for bringing that out because that's the biggest thing when you talk, specifically the teens, is the biggest thing is connecting. Because they really want to just be connected to, to be seen, to be heard, to be with, and not at, not talked at, not to be at. And it's a it's an amazing thing. And sometimes the hardest part I know for me as a therapist, when I work with teens, is giving them that space. Because I have my, you know, the parents are asking me to do X, Y, and Z, and the schools asking me to do X, Y, and Z, and whatever external things. But me and the teen, the teen wants to have that space to be themselves, not me to push anything or to be aggressive in my treatment, but to kind of sit back and let them lead. It's hard sometimes with like, I have ADHD. My patience is very limited. I'm like, say something, say something, come on. Like, and I'm like waiting to like chomping at the bit for, to kind of like get into my zone. But sometimes it's really being objective and kind of take a step back to realize it's not about you. It's about the teen and where they need to be in that treatment. And it's very right. hard like sometimes. what you
1: just shared was, oh, like I'm expected to do, I'm expected to do, I'm expected to do. They're the ones doing the work. Yeah, We're responsible for creating the space for them to step into or maybe giving them tools that they didn't have so that they could do the work or hold up a mirror so that they're then able to do something. And this is where our humility gets to come in. We're not doing anything. It's true. I can't heal anyone. And it it sounds strange to say that, that I'm not doing anything, but we're not doing anything. We're not, (laughs) (laughs) we're creating an environment for them to to be different, to do different, to try different. And yeah. it's that gift. And that's also something that's a really important part of, our, of the message is that students, peers, parents sometimes think, oh, but I can't do anything. Like, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a social worker. Like, this is a therapist and social worker conversation. And 1,000%, there are conversations that are just therapist and social worker conversations, 1,000%. There are a lot of conversations that, <laughs> yeah. that that really like, oh, Mark, so what did you do? Like, I sat there and listened. Oh, but like, so what do I do in that situation? Like, you sit there and listen and mm-hmm. you reflect back what you're hearing them say. Yeah.
0: I have it. Oh, I have it. it so often. I have it so witness often. Witness
1: people, witness. <laughs> people are looking to be witnessed. Yeah. They, they know the answer, they'll figure it out. Just witness them, be with them, connect them, insert mandatory reference to Brene Brown. Eventually, one day, I will get paid for all of my Brene Brown references. I was going to say, you are a huge Brene Brown quote. I'm convinced I've driven more traffic to her TED talk than anyone else. I'm sure you did. did People like that. Um, But sympathy versus empathy, look it up. It's amazing.
0: Yeah. (laughs) And and, um, it's just a really honest thing that sometimes when I have. You know, quote-unquote parenting, coaching conversations with the parents that I'm working with their teens. Um, it's really just a lot about like, what should I do for them? And I'm like, support them, sit with them, talk to them, listen to them. Um, it doesn't have to be me. It's, and, and and the funny thing is I say this line, I say, I don't have any secret to what I do. I just give them a space to be themselves and to, to support that. And they go, that's it? I'm like, well, it's not just it. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's not all I'm doing, but that's a big part of it because they don't get that sometimes. And then for you then, um, you know, it's it's just an amazing thing that you give that space and, and create that environment for, for teens to feel that way. And, and even for, to, to help educate schools and, and organizations on how to create that environment for teens, which is so needed and so important. You know, the, the statistics, unfortunately, of the mental health in the teenage world, you know uh a documentary that came out i think last year i, I you know the whole COVID thing kind of ruined my my, time time, my timeline <laughs> um uh, the social dilemma and how social media is yeah. and the research studies on suicidal ideations and suicide attempts in teenager teenagers even as early as 10 to 12 now um the statistics mm-hmm. are being counted are up like 180 percent to even 300 something percent which as a teenager i'm like i didn't know you can go above 100 percent, but you can um uh <laughs> That's why I'm a therapist. I don't do math. Um, (laughs) How do you go above 100%? 300%. But yes, you can. I know, but in coach, they always say give 200%. Yeah, and you're like, that's not possible. Right, give 100 to 10. (laughs) But it's a really scary thing and such an important uh, need. And and the question that I wrote down, you know, I like to write some notes while we're talking, classic therapist, um, is for you and your struggle and your journey, how did you, it's a two-part question, how did you handle the loneliness of that, of being kind of on your own with it? And then what was your, your experience like getting help or asking for help if you did?
1: Yeah. So your, so your question implies that I handled it.
0: <laughs> did, so basically loneliness was the worst and it sucked. And you didn't handle it. <laughs>
1: yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, yes. I think a, a fair question would be like, how did I, how did I experience it?
0: Yeah. So how was the experience uh, Going through that kind of quiet, silent pain. Is, is this is this a family friendly? Uh... <laughs> you can curse. You can scream. You can say whatever you want. Um, no, because it,
1: it it was it was very it was very isolating. Like the the metaphor that that I give is that of I didn't remember there being a before, and I couldn't imagine there being an after. So, I might as well just get really comfortable with where I am, mm-hmm. and where I am is is in a pit, and is separate, and is separate from. Um, And I really love um, the book, Perks of of Being a Wallflower. And there's a lot of imagery in that book of the observer of life and not really participating in. And even though I had some really rich friendships during that time, like a lot, but I wasn't, I wasn't connected to it. I wasn't aware of it and I, I wasn't allowing it. And I I created distance because that's where I felt safer. Yeah. Because as long as there was distance, then they couldn't know me. And as long as they don't know me, then they can't see me as I see me. And if people saw me as I see me, then they wouldn't want to be around me anymore. So I need to create this distance, even though all anybody wanted was to see me and be with me as as I was, yeah. uh, but I couldn't see what other people saw. I wasn't in a place to to handle that. Uh, like I remember when I got into therapy for the for the first time, uh, we actually practiced saying I feel statements. And they're like, "Oh, how's your day?" Like, I think it went well. And I was like, "Oh no, but how did it feel?" Like, no, I, I just told you. I'm mm-hmm. Like, no, You're like you told me how you think, but yeah. how do you feel? Like, I don't understand the question. <laughs> And it's so funny because people who know me now are like, oh, that's the emotion wheel guy or, yeah. oh, that's the processing guy or that's the emotional intelligence dude. And when I first heard the term emotional intelligence, I thought it was a bunch of crock and hooey. And I distinctly yeah. remember saying to the facilitator, um, if I have a high IQ, then who cares about my EQ? And, and that's where I was. Mm-hmm. I was very, like, I know I'm smart. I lived in my head. I was totally disconnected from from heart, I was totally disconnected from body, and we could have a very long uh, separate conversation about Judaism and males and separation from from emotions and and physicality um, and the impact of of that. Um, so yeah, my experience, I would say, would be would be disconnect, was uh, was numbness, was gray. I shut down the negative part of the emotional scale, uh, which I didn't realize also cut off the positive side of the emotional scale and exist in this very limited band that allowed me to be productive and get lots of stuff done, but cut off my range of emotional experience and experience of life and relationships with, with people. And I think a big part of my therapeutic experience, um, and I had two different therapists was the acknowledgement of my life and that i think a big part of therapy for me was okay what am i running away from mm-hmm. and actually sitting with that being with that in all of its uh, painful glory Yeah. <laughs> because that then opened up the other side
0: yeah and
1: yeah it was a dance
0: was that was that a weird experience then to jump into that world that you might not have had your toe in for a very long time to all of a oh. sudden be like o- opening that door to the emotional uh, world.
1: Weird. Weird is one word. Uh, <laughs> terrifying might be another one. Yeah. Like I would love to see the tape of my first therapy session. Cause I'm curious a, how many words I said at all and B and I know this is a podcast, so you can't see what I'm about to do, but imagine someone just sitting in the chair like totally straight up back, <laughs> grabbing both armrests for dear life, feet like planted on the floor. It was like fight and flight at the same time. But the right thing to do is to sit here for the full forty five minutes. So yeah. I can't leave because that would be rude. So I'm just gonna sit here poised to escape at any moment because either this person's gonna attack me or I'm gonna leave. Yeah. And like that. Was...
0: <laughs> I've had people I've had people in my office yeah. like that. <laughs>
1: That was that that because okay like what are these emotions that you speak of like
0: yeah.
1: I, I and like that was that was a lot and for a long time I didn't know was therapy working or not because I was so busy fighting mm-hmm. against it and it was the same conversation with medication it was like it was a fight to and then eventually I would either accept or give in depending on how uh, fair I feel like being to myself and. Uh,
0: <laughs> it's not first judgment that's a story I, I, I recently I recently connected with a guy called the feelings guy uh, his name's Archie I cannot pronounce his last name It's a hyphenated long last name um and he's a big believer of that question of not saying how are you doing but saying how are you feeling because how are you doing is a very lot like it's very mm-hmm. I did x y and z no no but that's not my point how are you actually feeling mm-hmm. and you know when I was on his podcast and he was on mine and I, the first thing I did as a joke was I said, Oh, how are you doing Archie? And he gave me a look because I know <laughs> that it's his thing to like, not say that. Um, yeah. But it is something that is so routine that we don't ask people how they're feeling. I actually started doing it. He asked me like to challenge myself before the podcast, to start asking people more. I started asking my wife, like, Hey, how are you feeling? Not, Hey, how's your, how, how was your day? How, what's going mm-hmm. on? What you, how's your, yeah. how are you doing? And it just opened up a different conversation. Not that she didn't talk about the other things, but it was just a deeper conversation that I wouldn't have gotten just by asking, how are you doing? And I think it's so important to, to reach out to people to ask, how are you are feeling? And, you know, we don't have that much time, but one of the things that I really wanted to plug that I really, really made a huge difference in my, not that I don't have a good view of you already, but a, a more, a greater view of you is what you did during COVID, right? When mm. people were really suffering and really struggling with the loneliness, when it comes to friendships, families. Um, And I know I dealt with that, but I'm married with a kid, right? So when someone is single or they are just separated from their family or whatever the situation was during COVID, you really push the boundary of getting rabbis approvals, religious approvals to have support systems in place for people who needed to talk to someone, even on Sabbath, even on the holidays, which normally wouldn't be a thing, but the importance of it trumped that. And I loved that. I thought, and I, I know I signed up for it and I was like, so on board and I spread it around because i was like, this is just amazing because people need to be, have a, have an outlet to be seen, to be able to be heard no matter what day and time it is. And sometimes therapists don't have that ability. And sometimes really it's a friend that can really help you in that one moment where you just need to talk to someone. So I really, truly admire that and want to just pump you up a little bit and say that was an amazing thing for society and for people who got involved And I hope you saw the help that it gave people. Um, And in the last couple of minutes or so for you, what has it been seeing where you were to where you are now? What has that shift been where you, if you can like look up and watch it was, is it like, are you really proud? Is it still a journey? Is it something that you're like, Oh, I can't believe it took me that long. Like what are those thought processes that you have or feelings you have about it?
1: So, so many chills right now. Um, I think I think it's all of the above, um, and I think that's something that I really—it's funny. Even now, you notice how I said I think. We <laughs> yeah, have this whole conversation about feelings. You ask me <laughs> how I'm doing. I'm like, oh, I think, because like, that's that's my default, uh, and now I'm much more aware of it. Yeah. Uh, so, to to rewind a little bit, uh, I'm I felt chills as as you were talking about the the pick up your phone uh, campaign. And there's a different organization that actually now picked it up and is uh, running with it, Zaka. Uh, yeah. And I felt chills for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one is there was a classic case of people waiting for permission. Yeah. I put something out there. A couple of people reached out to me. We created a social media campaign. And it took off because people wanted to give and wanted to listen and wanted to call. And they were just waiting for someone to go first. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of my life I was waiting for other people to go first. And a shift for me was, okay, what if I took the risk and went first? And I think a lot of people are out there waiting. And when people are public about their stories in a way that's contributing, Instead of a way that's look at me, I'm amazing. Mm-hmm. And I really try when I post on social media or share my story to always include, here's the the lesson or the reflection or the takeaway. So that way it's teaching and giving something. Mm-hmm. Uh, because otherwise I wouldn't be able to post. It would just be, oh, look at me. And I, I'm very, very uncomfortable uh, with with that. Uh, that people are waiting for that permission. And when they get that permission and how to act on it, what I call it like going from awareness to action. That, that's when that's when change happens. So for me, when I reflect back, uh, we started with the word journey. Let's finish with that word journey. A big mindset shift for me was, oh, I'm going to be done with my mental illness when. And there's no end to that. I believe you can live with it successfully for sure, manage successfully for sure. And things pop up because yeah. that's life. Yeah. And when I reflect back, I pick up your phone is a great example. The first two weeks of COVID for me were miserable. Um, I was alone in a basement in a foreign country. I was binging Bojack Horseman. Great show. <laughs> Not the show to watch if you are isolated in the basement in a foreign country during a pandemic. Brilliant show. But that was a lot of darkness to take in at yes, once. it is. A
0: very dark show. And <laughs> <laughs> for animation, you're like, oh, this should be great. And it's like, wait.
1: <laughs> oh, but wait, there's more.
0: Um, That's why I feel like Rick and Morty, but <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> and uh, there were two weeks where I where I didn't get out of bed. Yeah, and I remember after two weeks going, "Okay, Mark, you don't know how long this pandemic is going to last for. Mm-hmm. Either you're going to keep staying in bed, or you get to make a new choice." And my choice was. Okay, how do I focus out what connects me with people when I feel creative when I'm giving when I'm creating stuff? That's when I feel alive. Okay, given my current context, how can I still express myself? And I share that anecdote, because I think it sums up my journey in so many ways. My initial reaction was still my initial reaction. My initial reaction was still, let me avoid and let me shut down. And the way that I avoid and shut down from a stressful situation is to go to sleep and not go out. That's my, that's my default. I don't think that's changed. What has changed is how the tools that I have to respond to that and to manage that and then make a new choice. Uh, I know we're both Victor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning fans. Uh, and between stimulus and response, it lies the space, and that space is our ability to choose. Yeah. And that initial reaction is my initial reaction. But what my response is, I'm aware, okay, what do I do now? Mm-hmm. And I'm not perfect by any stretch of imagination, but I'm better than I was. And I think it's those crucible moments when we act differently. And to add in a little bit of, uh, of Judaism, because we know each other from NCSY and why yeah. not. Uh, that's the that's my monity's definition of repentance.
0: Yeah, When
1: you are in the same situation, but act differently, that's when you know change has occurred. And even there, it's not about repentance. The actual word is tshuva, which means to return. So the question is asked, oh, what are you returning to? And I love the interpretation I heard once that's about returning to your ideal self.
0: Hmm.
1: And when you're in that same situation, but act differently, that's when you know, oh, I've returned. Mm -hmm. And I think taking those moments to recognize, oh, here's how I've returned. Here's how I have progressed. And when we slide, because inevitably that happens, okay, here's the compassionate tool that I now have as opposed to the judgment tool, Mm -hmm. or, okay, I'm going to judge myself but hopefully not for as long yeah. and or, okay, I'm going to eat the bag of cookies, but I know when I'm done with the bag of cookies, because by the way, let's be clear. It is not one cookie. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Never. <is>
1: one cookie. <laughs> it's not one. It's the bag. Yeah. Uh, okay. Then what am I going to do afterwards? That's when I think the acknowledgement comes in, uh, which we're all, we're all beings. We're all beings in progress. Yeah.
0: I love that. I love that. That the whole that whole that whole thing is great. So, Mark, where can people find you? Where can they reach out to you? How can they have you speak? Where can they see your content? All that kind of stuff.
1: Uh, oh, perfect segue to how I am hiding from the world and still don't have a website because I'm working,
0: I'm working on my website now <laughs> because my original website, if you actually want to have a good time and see what an explosion of ADHD creativity on a website is, go to elevation.org because you'll see a vomitation of just color and different fonts because I cannot get it together, which is why I hired someone to do one for my new, my new website. Okay. So more we should talk about
1: that. And if you want to see hiding in action, I was at a coaching conference there. Oh, so who here is hiding from their ideal client? And I like jumped out of my me. seat. Like I am, if they find me, I'm great. Like I'm this amazing indie rock band where if you happen <laughs> to know, you know, that, like I should be, I should be out there. Um, and then I say I should stop shooting all over myself. And then we end up in this <laughs> loop. So to answer your question, if you want to find me, best way to find me is uh, send me an email, M-A-R-C period f E I N at gmail.com. That's M-A-R-C period f E I N at gmail.com is the most direct way to reach me. Happy to do coaching, presentations, schools, jokes, comedy hours, one-on-one conversations, whatever works, man. That's great. <laughs> That's
0: great. <laughs> I get asked on my website all the time. I'm like, don't go to my old website, please. Cause when I had the brander, look at it, she's like, I love the creativity, but we need to kind of oh, get it. Can
1: I share a quick great. anecdote? I remember about you before we close. You can. So though. this is a, so this is Ellie from, from years ago. Okay. There's a, there's a workshop that Ellie was running about perspective shifts. And it's amazing. What I love about this story is you can see where you are now and like how it was always there, just expressed differently. And you took out a piece of paper and you asked people, what do you see? go, like, oh, I see a white piece of paper. Then you put a black dot in the middle of the people, in the middle of a piece of paper. You ask people, oh, what did you see? And they're like, a black dot. And you went, well, what happened to the rest of the white paper? I do remember doing that. <laughs> and it was a great trigger activity for a conversation about perspective and what is it that we choose to focus on. And it's something that you've always been doing and now you're continuing to do it just in a different language and a different format.
0: I appreciate that, Mark. Really do. I really thank you for coming on. Um, You don't understand how much of an honor it is to have you on and to speak with you. You know, old friend, continue to be friend for many, many, many more years, but it's just um, to have you in this way versus the other way back in the day where I, it just, it's a very nice thing for me. It really is. So I appreciate that.
1: Absolute pleasure.
0: Pleasure to be here, Ali. Thank you so much to listening to this week's episode of The Dude Therapist. And it only is happening because of you, the listeners, tuning in every week, even twice a week, to this show all about mental health, relationships, and wellness topics. And really, let's be honest, everything in between. And I'm so excited to show up every time and having great guests. So, thank you. And if you have any questions, concerns, ideas, collaborations, email me at thedudetherapist at gmail.com. Follow me on Instagram at thedudetherapist. Let me know what you're thinking. Let me know your ideas. I can't wait to hear from you. And if you can go along, subscribe, rate, review on all the streaming sites that you're listening on. I truly appreciate it because that's what make this thing happen. So thanks for tuning in this week and see you next time on the Dude Therapist podcast So we've got more guests and more great content coming your way.